there. It's Scary Parish. It's Wednesday, June 27, 2018. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander here with me. And it's been a little while since we last spoke, nearly two weeks. Um, we were both bouncing around a lot last week. I was in uh, New York part of the week, Fort Lauderdale part of the week. Norlander was on golf coverage and then actually at Barclays Center for the NBA draft. So we just... Uh, I, I suppose we could have connected, but it would have been very, very difficult. So we apologize if you've been uh, refreshing your uh, Apple podcast feed over and over again. But we're here now. Norlander, what's up with it? Hey, bud. Good to be back with you. Not much. Yeah, I did some U.S. Open coverage, which was cool. And then the Travelers Championship, which always takes place after the U.S. Open, is up here in my home state of Connecticut. So I did a back-to-back weekend, some some golf, a nice way to switch it up. And then the draft was a lot of fun and also uh, interesting and great to do with CBS Sports HQ, which, by the way, if you are not watching, be sure to watch CBS Sports HQ, 24-hour news network. Paris did a great job on the draft coverage. I watched as much as I could there, GP, in, in the midst of actually um, being there, interviewing players. I actually, we had it on like a second screen there, and you guys did a great job as well. But it has been pretty busy um, just with stuff surrounding it. So, yeah, apologies to, to the listeners, but uh, it's great to be able to pod again and kind of catch up with plenty of – this is a bit refreshing. Plenty of college basketball news itself outside of even what happened at the draft. And uh, a lot of it's got to do with Wendell Carter's mother. She's fired up, huh? Parrish, she's fired up, and this is interesting. <laughs> so as we record this, I'm about done a column. It'll publish later on. So depending on when you're listening to this, it'll either just be a getting about to be published or it'll have long been published if you are if you're catching up on the podcast but to me what's intriguing about this is you don't often have people outside of the media and maybe even within the media a lot parish really going after Shashevsky and I guess if you were to be even more specific about it going after Shashevsky's character which in essence is what Kylia Carter has done here because she feels as though she was uh, deceived and the family was deceived by Shashevsky. She told us to NBC Sports Chicago. She said she was, quote, pissed, end quote, once Marvin Bagley III got into the fold at Duke because for so long the idea was that Wendell Carter, who, by the way, was an elite five-star, one-and-done prospect going into Duke, the idea was that he was going to potentially be the focal point of an offense. And then eight, nine months later, Bagley joins the fold. I've got a number of thoughts on this because I think it's – it's interesting, but it's also a little complicated, and I think both sides are sort of validated in their feelings. But what's your reaction, Parrish, when you see the mother of a one-and-done recruit who went to Duke, was a top-seven pick, and then three, four months after the college season ends, deciding to say, oh, by the way, you know, I wasn't thrilled about this. I haven't talked to Krzyzewski about this yet, but we're going to get to that at some point, which was also intriguing because it's not as though this was – percolating behind the scenes for six, seven months, Paris. If we're to take her for her word, she hasn't really even addressed these concerns to Krzyzewski directly. He found out about them at least most directly through the media. Yeah, well, I guess I would say I'm not sure that she, quote, decided to um, speak up about this now as much as it appears she was asked about it, right? And, and she's a talker. Uh, she seems to be a great talker. And, um, and so she was asked about something, and she, she went – you know, full throttle. Um, I can understand both sides. I, I think you and I might be in agreement here. And, and I have, we haven't talked about this at all. I don't even know what your column is going to say, but I could understand being the parent of a, a five-star big who uh, commits to Duke enrolls at Duke 
and thinks that your son's going to be the primary focus of this and that and whatever. And then, you know, in July, after your son's already enrolled, you find out the best high school prospect in the world um, is, is, is headed to Duke and going to be perhaps not in direct competition with your son, but clearly taking rebound shots opportunities away from your son in some form. So I get that. But the alternative is what? Like you're not supposed to take Marvin Bagley if you're Duke. I mean, that's the part I don't I like what, like I understand uh, Mrs. Carter um, why you might have felt blindsided by this because on some level the college basketball world was blindsided by this. You remember we were, I don't know if you were at Peach Jam, but I was at Peach Jam and that's where I wrote about it from. And and I asked Marvin about it and asked his father about it and, you know, had talked to enough coaches involved in the recruitment to to be able to to report like this is going to happen. And, you know, or, or at least Marvin Bagley is trying to make it happen. And so I can understand if you're Wendell Carter's mom or Wendell Carter and you you hear about this and you're like, whoa, what? But the alternative to not if, if you believe Wendell Carter and or his mother was wronged by this, then the alternative to wronging them was for Duke to what? Not take a commitment from Marvin Bagley. I mean, get out of here. So, uh, this is just this is college basketball. This is the way th- this stuff works. I, you know, I, I I I find it difficult to. I can understand why she might have felt like her son ended up in a situation that they didn't plan for, but I don't know that there's any realistic alternative to that happening. Uh, it's on Mike Shoshevsky and his staff to recruit the best possible players they can get to Duke, and once Marvin Bagley the third has a potential to reclassify and get into that group, they have to go after him. It's just the nature of the beast. Now, I think w- how we get to this point, Parrish, is – and I was speaking with a couple of coaches at, at you know high major schools, and one, they say that the reclassification game just in general has really muddied the waters even more so because you are going to have players that are top 15 quality – that want to advance their clock so they can get to the NBA sooner. If, if the timeline allows, if the calendar allows, get to the NBA sooner so they can get one more year in the pros, get that much more money, get to it quicker. So that, is, that has been a dynamic that has been added into the fold, particularly within the past five years that really wasn't there at all 20 years ago, let alone 10, 12 years ago. So that's part of it. But in trying to understand where the Carter family is coming from this, we don't know what exactly was promised by Shashevsky and his staff, but certain things get promised, particularly if you were a top 10 recruit. Okay. There are just certain things that you're going to go in there and you're going to sell in order to land a player of Wendell Carter Jr.'s ability. And even though he was overshadowed by Marvin Bagley, the third at Duke, I want to remind people that he was an awesome, awesome prospect. And had Bagley never gone to Duke, there would have been a lot of anticipation and, expectation of him not to necessarily be as good as Bagley was I don't think it was that high but absolutely to be a potential all-american type of player and then Bagley gets there all the presses for him and what will Grayson Allen do and yes Wendell Carter Jr. was absolutely overshadowed by Bagley but so we don't know what Duke promised to the family and then let's say they promise A B C D and G okay forget about F and then Bagley gets into the fold and they're seeing from afar your reports from the Peach Jam last year perished. They're seeing clearly, you know, adamant recruiting and a lot of activation on behalf of Shashevsky to get this done. And then after it gets done, as I note in the column, Shashevsky even 
says, you know, we were confident that he was going to be cleared in this process, indicating that for at least a couple months time, they had designs and they had their sights on getting him reclassified. So if you're the Carter family, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, like you went through this with us for a year and a half, two years. You told us all of these things. And now someone better has just come along. Now, the flip side to that, obviously, is, well, yeah, I mean, at, at, at a certain point, you got to know who you are and where you stand. And this is sometimes the uncomfortable reality. And as I also note, this is commonplace at the top programs, and you'll find it in the lowest levels of Division Three basketball, where you simply will have parents that you cannot appease. There are too many roster spots, too little playing time. Only a certain number of guys can get the ball, get their touches, get their shots. You can never please everybody. But what's unusual about this is, one, it's Duke. And two, you don't normally have people going after Krzyzewski in this kind of way. I don't expect him to respond to this publicly, Parrish, because it doesn't serve him well to do so. But at the same time, um, yes, she was asked about it, so she spoke up about it. She could have simply said something along the lines of, Oh, sure. It didn't go the way we wanted it to go, but I'll tell you what. My son, even though he was not afforded the opportunities we thought initially, he was benefited by playing alongside Marvin, and he ended up being a top – like, she could have – she could have taken a different lane than she took, and now those recruiting against Krzyzewski, even though it might not, might not prove to be successful, they can use some of this against him in recruits for 2019 and 2020. No question. Um, I, I, Wendell Carter, I, I think the timeline is important. He, he committed to Duke in November 2016, and at that time, I guess Marvin Bagley was a sophomore in high school? <laughs> Don't try and make me figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, 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 yeah, he would have been a sophomore in high school. And so I, I do think that the Duke staff knew well in advance. Uh, I don't know about well in advance, but knew before July. I, I would say they knew no later than June of 2017. Yeah. That, yeah, by the way, uh, Bagley was a junior in, in high school. He had just started. He'd been in November of his junior year. So I would say they knew probably at least by June of 2017, June of last year, that Bagley was going to reclassify. And I actually would, wouldn't be surprised if they were – if it was their idea and if they you know, worked hand-in-hand hand with them in whatever form to, to, to try to get the best opportunity to do it, to try to make sure he understood what needed to be done to do it, right? So I, I don't – I guess my my point being this: when when I report Marvin Bagley is reclassifying, the Duke staff wasn't like, "Oh wow, really?" Like they knew. Um, all the staffs involved in the recruitment knew, but I'm not sure they knew back in November 2016 mm-hmm. when when Wendell Carter committed. And so, at the time they were telling him whatever it is they told him, it was probably all true. And then, as as tends to happen in life, things change. And again, if you have an opportunity to enroll the player most people believed was the best high school prospect in the world, um, I don't know how you turn that down because of promises you made to Wendell Carter in November 2016. Or maybe not, and, and they might not even be promises as much as they're just like you're framing a possibility in a certain way that, that doesn't end up being reality. Where I do think a mother of a prospect would 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 have a right to be upset is if something like this went down. Let's say Wendell Carter and DeAndre Ayton are in the same class. And they've always been in the same class. They're always set to enter college the same year. And 
you know, Duke is recruiting Wendell Carter and they're telling him all these things and they go to the mother and the mother says, okay, listen, but we want to be the star of the front court. We want to get all the touches. We want things to run through us. Um, DeAndre Ayton is still uncommitted. And they say, listen, we're not recruiting DeAndre Ayton. You don't have to worry about DeAndre Ayton being on our campus. You know, he, he might go to Arizona. He might go to wherever, but he's not going to be at Duke. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. And then they go out and sign Wendell, uh, sign DeAndre Ayton after they sign Wendell Carter. I think that's dirty business because mm. that's you're absolutely miss you're, you're you're lying to somebody. But I'm confident when Wendell Carter committed to Duke and signed with Duke, there was never any conversations about Marvin Bagley because nobody thought Marvin Bagley at that time was going to be in college the same year Wendell Carter was going to be. It was supposed to be uh, Wendell Carter one year, and then if you get Marvin Bagley, Marvin Bagley the next. Again, at the time Wendell Carter committed, so. Like, I don't like this isn't the one where I, I think you can be up in arms. I can understand why you might be frustrated if you're Wendell Carter's mother. She's a mother. Um, you know, it's her child. But if if this is supposed to be the uh, Coach K and his staff have been exposed moment, I think it falls well short of that. I do as well. And then just to wrap it up here, ultimately, while Carter might not have gotten quite as many minutes as the family would have thought. I mean, he who was, I think, fourth or fifth on the team in minutes, but he still had really good production, but he wasn't an all-ACC player and all of that. Still winds up going seventh overall, goes to a better franchise than Marvin, doesn't make as much money, sure. You know, it it could have gone, I guess, much worse for him, and the fact that it didn't speaks to, obviously, you know, his ability no doubt about that, but, you know, how he was coached and everything. So the family is fine overall. I think they would admit that as well, but clearly the fact that she is taking this route speaks to how much it, it's just it still bothered her just a little bit, the, the, how it transpired. But, I, I listen, I have a hard time bringing any sort of fault to the Duke staff here short of something we are not aware of in terms of promises made, but I'm with you 100% Parrish. I just don't think in November 2016 when he commits, the Duke staff, even in the back of their mind, thinks there's a chance that Marvin Bagley III is going to be in the same class as Wendell Carter Jr., so how can you fault him for that? And then once it becomes a possibility, yeah, it's, it's their duty to try and get him on campus as best they can. Obviously, they succeeded at that, and then now Krzyzewski can boast two top seven picks instead of having just one. Sure. If you tell me, or if Mrs. Carter would have said, listen, we talked to them in November 2016 before Wendell committed about Marvin Bagley because we knew there was a chance he'd reclassify. And they told us they were not going to enroll Marvin Bagley or that Marvin wasn't going to be the same year as Wendell. And then in July, we find out that that's not going to be the case. Then I'm like, okay, I understand. Like, I'd be pissed too. And now I'm ready to write the column. Like, that's wrong. You know, but uh, if, if they never talked about Marvin Bagley and there was never any real indication in November 2016 that Marvin Bagley was going to enroll at Duke uh, to play in the 2017-18 season, then I don't, you know, the world changed. Marvin Bagley decided to reclassify. He became av available. Uh, Duke would have been idiotic to not accept his commitment. And either way, the bottom line, like you said, is, you know, Wendell Carter went to uh, a school that, uh, right there with Kentucky provides the biggest stage college basketball can provide. Um, he played on a top five team and he was a top seven pick. Like life's pretty good. You know, <laughs> like th things worked out. Okay. Imagine being Marquis Marquis Bolden's parents. Those are the ones that ought to be furious. 
<laughs> and he's still on the team, by the way. Like, and now you got Shashevsky <laughs> talking about how he's going to be an improved big man. For I, you make a great point. I have a quick line in that column, Parrish, uh, about just other players on the team and what must their fan like. This is just part of the whole deal. And yeah, I. Oh, it's why. It, and, 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 and to be clear, Wendell Carter is not like who I'm talking about when I make this point. But it's why I've said, like, if you're a, a, a you know, if you're ranked 65th in the country, you got to be a maniac to go to Kentucky or Duke. Like, what are you? What are you? You're never going to get on the court. I mean, they're going to recruit players better than you every single year. I don't want to say you'll never get on the court. Anything's possible, but the odds of it are aren't good. Um, the, more likely than not, you're going to go there, sit on the bench for two years, and transfer. And so you just when you enroll at a place like Duke or Kentucky, and it might just be those two places, you have to be very aware that there is a decent chance, almost regardless of who you are, they might get somebody better than you, uh, because um, it, you know they're rec- they're, rec- they're they're stacking the top two recruiting classes in America with five stars every single year. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, it- <laughs> It, it will be interesting to see what other fallout, if any, if any, comes from this. But it's it's unusual, and uh, even though we got the recruiting July recruiting period just around the corner, um, for Shashevsky and Duke, I guess it's well timed, and that we're so far removed from the end of the college basketball season, and still so far in the distance is the next one. Uh, we wait and see. But that was certainly an unexpected headline that popped up early this week. Uh, you mentioned Coach K said about Bold and that he'll be one of the best big men in the country this year. Are you buying that? Not a chance. Um, I think so either. A year ago, I mean, listen. A year <laughs> like, who are we to argue with Coach K? He sees Mark Weiss bowling every day, right? But like, ah, you know, I, I, I don't want to say after two years of college, you are what you are, because that seems absurd. But I never seen anything actually on the court that made me think, you know, Bolden is j- just needs a breakthrough year. Yeah, if Bolden perish, if Bolden winds up being a breakthrough player, listen, you and I will write a column on it. That'll be great. I'll just, you know, if I'm giving an honest assessment, he is as lost on defense from a big man perspective as really any former five-star big man I can recall in the past three or four years. I mean, just completely out of his element there. He's got to vastly improve that. And obviously Duke is bringing in, you know, the assembly line is just a conveyor belt. More and more dudes, so I don't know. We'll we'll see about that. If Duke is going to be a top-five team again next season – I don't believe that Bolden being the best big man is going to be part of that equation or a top five big man in the country. We wait and see. So one thing that has happened since we last spoke, and this is more of an indication of of when we last spoke than anything else, uh, Reed Travis committed to Kentucky, and I moved Kentucky to number one in the CBS Sports top 25 and one. And while I understand that it it is – it is debatable, I guess, if only because this stuff is all debatable. Um, it seems pretty clear cut to me. You know, they now have, you know, that that I think necessary combination of um, experienced, relevant talent and five star freshmen that John Calipari's best teams have usually included, and. While I still think Kansas is going to be great and Duke's got a chance to be great and Nevada is obviously uh, stacked and a legitimate Final Four contender, uh, once I looked at it player by player, um, it seemed clear to me that that Kentucky is the clear-cut number one preseason team. Is it that clear to you? Taking into account who Kentucky brings back, 
and measuring that up against what Kansas has coming via transfers, recruits, because Kansas was your number one team. And if you want to include, you know, Duke and Nevada, potentially Gonzaga in that, it is probably the most practical decision to put Kentucky at number one heading into next season because of Reed Travis's inclusion. Reed Travis has been a really good player for Stanford, and he's, he's a classic example, in my opinion, Parrish, of a dude who is borderline terrific as a college player, but the skill set he has is not going to translate into any kind of successful NBA career. But at the college level, and particularly as a graduate transfer, someone who's you know, six seven, maybe six eight, and a bulky um, two hundred and fifty, really good rebounder, pretty good shot uh, shot selection from this guy. I've Stanford hasn't been that relevant, Parrish, but I've watched particularly because of Reed Travis. In fact, I feel like last year, the year before, I was especially high on him when we were doing our top one hundred and one player rankings because I I believe that he's a fantastic college player and is the right kind of inclusion for this Kentucky team in terms of what it could really use down low. Now, in bringing in a grad transfer, we're going to have another quirk to to Cal has basically run the gamut on on different kinds of lineups and how and roster assembly and what he has done over a near decade at Kentucky. So, you sent out the text, I don't know, a week ago or whenever it was and we're just kind of saying like I'm trying to justify putting Kentucky one or not and there is really nothing against it. Like with everything they have, it's reasonable. I, Parrish, I don't like agreeing with you because I'd like to actually debate you on this. But with Travis going to Kentucky, entering the season, I like their personnel better than I like Kansas, who was at number one prior to this. Right. I mean, the way it breaks down is they've obviously got an amazing recruiting class um, highlighted um, by the, the number one point guard in America uh, once he reclassified Ashton Higgins. And then, you know, three. this is the key. I think they're going to start – Probably three non-freshmen, or at least at least three of the top six players are going to be non-freshmen. You know, PJ Washington, uh, Quade Green, and then Reed Travis, who's like a 22-year-old man. And it's not um, just important to have older guys. Like older guys, like sitting at the end of your bench, don't really matter. But having a 22-year-old who is super productive, um, you know, uh, you know, in you know, at, at, in your starting lineup is a big deal for Kentucky. That's not something that they've had. And when you look back at what I consider to be the the best Kentucky teams that that John Calipari's had, 2010, 2012, 2015, they've all had, and we've talked about this before, uh, roster balance. It, not just um, the five star freshmen, because all of his teams have had that, but either sophomores, juniors, or seniors that are also in the rotation and also relevant players. And this this 2018-19 team uh, projects the, the same way. So, yeah, like I was hesitant to do it just because, you know, the it's all you always have to hear from everybody who's not a Kentucky fan. Oh, Kentucky, number one again. How'd that work out for you? Because if they are number one in the AP poll in October – they it will be the third time in a six year span that they have started the season ranked number one. And obviously in that six year span, uh, there has been, uh, you know, to, in the previous five years, there has been no no national championship. And so, um, you know, you, you have to be aware of that. And yet, just like it, with any other rankings, what you do is is look at um, the other options. 
And when you started breaking, when I started breaking down Kentucky's roster and comparing it to Kansas's roster or anybody else's roster, it seemed it seemed obvious to me. Doesn't mean Kentucky will be the best team, but on paper, uh, they look like they should be the best team. And the updated odds from uh, Las Vegas bookmakers do show that Kentucky is now the favorite uh, to win the national championship, um, which I, I guess can take us into a column I wrote yesterday. John Clay, who's been a columnist at the Lexington Herald Leader uh, for a long, long time, sort of posed the question on uh, Twitter this weekend and then also um, uh, you know, wrote a column about it. Like, should John Calipari have more than one national championship? And his answer, if you just have to do yes or no, is the same answer I would have. Yes, of course he should. Um, but when you dive into it, it's it's it, it it requires you to you know when you look at John's nine years at Kentucky, it requires you to to to, to sort of balance a you know championship or bust mentality with even if you think he should have more championships, he's still arguably been the most successful college basketball coach over the past nine years in the entire country. He's been to four Final Fours in a nine-year stretch. That's twice as many as anybody else. But there is the only championship. But one of the things I did was go back and look at all the times John either had what I consider to be the nation's best team or, for whatever reason, found himself in a great spot to win a national championship. And I think what I found is that six times in the past 13 years, he's had – either the best team or an awesome shot, realistic shot to win the national title. You go back to 2006, he's at Memphis. Memphis is a one seed. They're playing UCLA in the Elite Eight. If he beats UCLA, a team that they had already beaten once earlier in the season, um, then they're in the Final Four. And while I don't know that they would have won it, they would have been the only one seed at that Final Four. That's the Final Four that George Mason made. Florida, everybody remembers winning back-to-back titles and was great and loaded, but Florida was a three-seed in that NCAA tournament. So there's one. 2008, obviously, they're up nine with 158 to play. If Mario Char- if they don't collapse and then Chalmers doesn't hit that shot, that's a national championship. 2010, I think he had the best team. John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Patrick Patterson, all those guys, Eric Bledsoe. 2012, he actually did win it. Uh, 2015, I think he had the best team. He did have the best team. They finished 38 and one, but lost to Wisconsin in the Final Four. And then in 2014, nobody thinks that Kentucky team was great, but they were in the championship game in a two and a half point favorite over UConn at tip off. They lost 60 54 or something like that. So, like, that's six different times where, like, he could have got one and he only got one. And if he doesn't get one this year, you know, that, that bullet point will, um, will, will, will be what it is and that conversation will intensify but I sort of bottom line the column this way all you can do uh, or all you can reasonably expect a college basketball coach to do is assemble a championship contender as often as possible get as high a seat as you can in the NCAA tournament which makes advancing deep more likely than not and then just hope for the best and that's the nature of the NCAA tournament. It's a single elimination tournament featuring 68 schools and 40-minute games. Like, no coach, I don't care how good your team is, is ever likely to win the championship when the tournament starts. And that's just not true in the NBA. 
Not true, um, you know, in the NFL. Not true in a whole bunch of sports. Uh, but it's absolutely true in in college basketball. And so the point I make is you can focus on the missed opportunities, but that's way better than a lack of opportunities. And I would and, – and, and, and with John Calipari, you're never going to lack opportunities. He's going to give himself a shot. On average at Kentucky, it's been about every other year, a realistic shot to win a championship. And um, eventually he'll add more to him, I, I think, just because he's given himself great shots basically every season. If you were to recalibrate the question and say when John Calipari got to Kentucky in 2009, you know, broadly speaking, what was the expectation of John Calipari? And if you take that versus where we are now, Parrish, has he exceeded those expectations? My answer is yes, absolutely. Even with only one national title, the Final Fours mean a lot. Making a Final Four, college basketball is fun in part because, yes, winning the title means everything. But there are different tiers um, that are, I guess, established. Like, if you get to a Final Four, it's its own mini championship in a way. And for some programs, it practically is one. You know, for VCU and George Mason and Wichita State, that's essentially winning a national championship. For a lot of programs, making the NCAA tournament in itself, or if you get to Sweet 16, that's why I love March. That's why I love the tournament. And college basketball has so much diversity with its expectations among different kinds of programs. Now, at Kentucky, obviously, winning it all is is a is a league apart, and you need to be winning more in the in the eyes of the fan base than what Cal has done. But from every single, I think the stat is this: I heard it um, draft day last week. I think every single player that decided to leave after his freshman year at Kentucky, and if you know if this is wrong, correct me, or if someone listening. But I thought I heard this. Every single one-and-done player at Kentucky has been a first-round pick. Okay, So if you were able to take every single player to come out of your program, decide to leave after the first year, and he's going to be a top-30 pick, and I would guess more than half of those are, in fact, lottery picks, huge success. And put more guys into the NBA than anyone else during his time since he got to Kentucky. Big-time success. Making those Final Fours, huge success. Should he have more than one title at this point? Yeah, I guess, but winning a title is just so... Hard to do, and I do think that the fan base, even though I can't speak for them directly, I, I think they are um, satisfied with what Cal has done, perhaps frustrated here or there, but they, they do have, for as fanatical as Kentucky fans can be, I do think they have a solid grasp on just how fickle the tournament is and how it can be a random results generator so often, and how Kentucky has won in spite of that many times and made the final four in certain years where it didn't have the team that proved worthy of that leading into the tournament. And sure, there have been a couple of years, most notably 2009, 2010, where they fell short of it, even though they should not have done that. Um, Cal overall, you mentioned bullet point. This might be unfairly building itself to being a gorilla stat type of deal here because he's won one. Like, it's not like he hasn't done it. He's actually done it. And he's the only coach Potentially because of how he speaks with the media, how he carries himself, boasts about Kentucky. He's the only coach where we put this expectation on one's not good enough. You need to have more than one. This is not going to cut it. Um, it's an interesting dynamic that I don't think exists anywhere else in sports. The only, the only other thing that I think even comes close, and it's not even close, 
uh, is not even a team sport. Like Dustin Johnson is considered by many people to be the most talented golfer out there. He only has one major at this point. He's 32 years old. And yeah, that's right. I'm bringing in some golf coverage because I've had it on my mind the past week and a half, Parrish. But legitimately, there's confusion over the fact that like, how is this guy this good? He's got you know 20 PGA Tour wins at this point. And oddly, he only has one major. It makes no sense whatsoever. Well, with Cal, it's kind of similar. He gets so many one-and-done wins, uh, annually a top-two recruiting class, annually in the top five in the preseason polls, nearly annually he's winning the SEC and getting really good seeding heading into the tournament in most years. And yet, there's only one national championship to to speak for it. If he doesn't get that second one, I think that's just going to be a, a part of, like, his overall story as a coach, but particularly at Kentucky, you know, he changed the recruiting game. Those teams were really good. He had some all-time great teams, but weirdly, at the end of his career, he only had one, um, which I'll ask you this now. We don't know how much longer he's going to coach, right? I remember famously his first season, Parrish, he said, I'm not going to last more than a decade at Kentucky. Didn't necessarily believe in that moment. I don't believe it now because that means he'd have only one more year there. But whether his career at Kentucky is another two seasons or another 12, um, over under .5 national championships for John Calipari at Kentucky, what are you taking? I'll go over. I think he'll get another one. I do, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's a little bit like um, – I don't get in a batter's box or throwing darts. Like if you have a if you have ten darts, you're gonna get a bullseye eventually, right? I mean, if you're a professional, um, what is a what I is a professional? I think they're dart players. Player? I don't think what? they're called like darters. <laughs> <laughs> what are they called? What's a professional dart player called? Just that, I think. <laughs> Just a dart player. That sounds so ridiculous. I'm a well, dart player. You're a professional player? basketball player. You're a professional baseball player. Why would it be any other thing? It feels like it should be a, a darter. Like a bowler? Okay. Yeah, like I'm a darter. So what do you do? I'm a professional darter. <laughs> That's what it sounds like it should be, but I know it's not. No, they're just, I'm, I'm, I just Googled it. It's just professional dart, darts darts with an S player. Oh, uh, okay. Professional dart. Okay, so if you're a professional darts player, you might only need one dart. So, um, But, like, you get the point. Like, if you give your – how about lottery tickets? If you buy ten, you're more likely to hit something than if you buy one. John's got a lottery ticket every year. Because he's got lottery picks basically every year. Um, you, you know, you just keep giving yourself opportunities. Uh, you're going to – the ball will bounce your way uh, eventually. And it already has once. He's got that 2012 title. And you're exactly right. Um, you know, he's not dealing with the, the stuff Sean Miller is dealing with or, or Tony Bennett, I guess, to a lesser degree. Like, yo, you know, like when are you going to – I guess they're still dealing with the get to the Final Four thing, right? Mm-hmm. But – you know, he is probably the only coach where simply having one is deemed by some to be um, unacceptable. Although I wonder, is Bill Self starting to run into this a little bit at Kansas? Maybe, but I only think that's within. See, it's weird, Parrish. I think maybe, but that's only within the fan base and nationally and outside of Kansas. He's accepted as a good coach. And listen, winning all those Big 12 championships, maybe there should be something against that. Whereas with Kentucky, it's more outside in. More national people and people outside the fan base are now. Don't get me wrong. Like obviously, Kentucky fans think that with all the talent they have, they should have had more than one. But I don't feel like the fan base is pinning Cal against the wall and starting to get sick of this that he doesn't have more than one. It just doesn't feel like there's even any smells of a mutiny brewing inside of that fan base overall. Whereas Kansas is probably just as thrilled to have self there. Um, they're a little more like, what the hell, man? Like, how are we not getting closer? And part of that is, by the way, itself has been there longer than Cal and still has fewer Final Four trips 
at Kansas than Cal has at Kentucky. Right. I think the other thing, you have to, like if you're going to say John Calipari should have won more championships in his nine years at Kentucky, then you have to uh, ask the question, well, who has actually done more? And I believe it's only two guys. Um, Mike Krzyzewski has two in that span. He got he won in 2010 and then won again in 2015. And then Jay Wright obviously has won two in that span. But I think that's it. Yeah. So when you've been to twice as many Final Fours as anybody else in the past nine years – and only two people have won more championships than you. Like that's pretty damn good. Um, I, I guess I would, I would, I'd bottom line it this way. I don't think even Kentucky fans, who I think some can acknowledge are are sometimes irrational. I think even Kentucky fans are smart. I shouldn't say that, but like I, I think even Kentucky fans realize they couldn't have anybody better. Nobody, it's, it's unreasonable to think that anybody, that anybody else in that job could do any better, could do that job any better than, than, than the way John's done it. And if you set a championship or bust mentality, um, apply it to, to any, literally any coach or any program in college basketball, you are setting yourself up to be disappointed. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a failing proposition every single time. You know, in college football with Nick Saban in Alabama, it's not. But in in college basketball, with any coach in any program, that just, that just can't be where the pass fail line is. If it is, um, everybody's going to fail. You know, well, way, way, way more often than they pass. Well, how about this? Let's transition to our final topic here because there is a coach who has a national championship who is still considered a failure, a recent coach, and his situation overall doesn't have many, if any, parallels perish, and that's obviously Kevin Ollie at UConn, former UConn coach, and his legacy at that school gets more complicated by the month because he goes from, you know, obviously NBA caliber player at the university to playing and being a journeyman in the NBA and someone who coming into the college coaching scene parish had a really good reputation as sort of a, as a soothsayer on the player level in the pros. He famously was a mentor to Kevin Durant. He goes to the UConn bench and becomes Calhoun's next guy. Like that's the guy Calhoun wanted to take over the program. He does that, wins the title. Sure, with a lot of the guys that Calhoun recruited, I don't care. Wins a title nonetheless, and then it goes south from there. He gets canned. Now he's in the middle of this lawsuit, and now we find out more and more that the things UConn is pinning on him uh, and the reasons why it doesn't want to pay him a buyout in the neighborhood of $10 million, the accusations vary. But to you, Parrish, there's one in particular. Like You made a good point right before we started this podcast. Like Some of the stuff I get is, is a little petty, but – in your eyes, there is one in particular that UConn has a leg to stand on and is potentially valid and might wind up helping UConn, if not win its case, certainly go a long way to not paying them a lot of money. For, for, from your perspective, which aspect of the rules violations, alleged ones, do you think that is? Right. Well, first things first, let me just state, I think it's hilarious that the school that stood by Jim Calhoun is now trying to fire yes. Kevin Alley for calls. Like, get out of my face. And I know it's different people in different circumstances, but like, come on. If Kevin Alley was still winning um, or you know, enough, uh, he would still have his job. None of this stuff would be an issue. None of it. So th- 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 I think that's important to know. Like, you know, U- UConn might legally get over on him, uh, but like nobody thinks this is – you know, Kevin Ali is not is is. How about this? 
if Kevin Ali had gone to the final four last year, but also been found to have committed major violations, he would still be the head coach at UConn. Not even, not even, not even a discussion. He didn't get fired because of, um, he was running a, a, a rogue program or committing major violations. He got fired because he took one of the most successful programs of the past few decades and turned it into absolute crap. Like it, you know, as much time as, you know, I spent over the past year in my hometown talking about Memphis basketball should never look this way. Like it was even more true with UConn. Like UConn is a level above Memphis historically. And UConn was a level below Memphis in this. It's like incredible. Like, you know, that program should never get to where it got to. And I know injuries played a part, but whatever. UConn should never be as bad. That's why Kevin Alley's not the coach. But there is language in the contract, if I read it correctly, that says he can be fired for cause. And it doesn't say major violations. Like I, t- I think it just says for rule, you know, breaking rules. Like it, 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 it unless I read it incorrectly, it doesn't stipulate that it's got to be some major violation it's just like you know if if you're found to have broken rules we can terminate the contract and so i think uconn might have a legal way to get this done but there is one allegation that would be a major rules violation um and it comes from i think a former assistant yeah but there's a whole bunch of allegations but the 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 allegation specifically is this that kevin ollie had a buddy who was a trainer and he would work out UConn players for free, both in stores, but then also in Atlanta, and that UConn players went to Atlanta to work out with him, and they stayed for free, and they ate for free, and that's all like, I mean, that's, you know, regardless of how you feel about the NCAA rulebook, that is not allowed, not even close in the NCAA rulebook. And if they can, um, you know, find that, what's wild is, by trying to not pay Kevin Ollie, they are actually like investigating themselves for the NCAA. <laughs> like they're, 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 they could end up like getting put on probation again or a postseason ban based on they're trying to save millions of dollars here. But if that can be substantiated in some way, um, I mean, that's a major violation and it'll never be the reason he was fired. But it might be the reason he don't get his money. Yeah, UConn's approach from this parish. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll get to the the workout thing in just a second. But from UConn's perspective, my understanding is this: they're going to go this route because if they uncover this kind of stuff, the NCAA is then going to uh, afford the university leniency because UConn will then say we uncovered this mid-season, notified you. You've been the NCAA has quasi been working hand in hand with UConn on this got rid of Ollie, got rid of the entire staff, and hopefully absolve itself, Parrish, of any significant NCAA sanctions to come forward. That's what their approach is. If, if it doesn't go that way, it would be one of the uh, more hilarious backfires ever. We wait and see on that. And as for the workouts, uh, you know, you can just say, oh, it's just workouts, whatever. Well, there is a big-time difference between having a guy sneak in some workouts on campus here and there, which – relatively minor in my opinion i don't care about that but if you've got players hopping on planes going hundreds of miles to work out there's just not a big difference between from the in and in the ncaa's eyes there's just not a big difference between that and 
Bob McKillop using Steph Curry and saying, yeah, listen, I'm going to take my guys. They're going to work out with Steph or Steph's main guy. That's, that can be a major recruiting advantage. And hey, I'll take it a step further. Steph's going to fly my guys out to California. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, that's what this is. Unquestionably. So that's why the line is drawn there. And it's a fair line to draw because – you can it, it's, you, things can spiral totally out of control with with benefits afforded, and that's why these things need to be kept in check. So, if in particular those allegations are in fact true, I think it's it's a huge ding against Ollie, who's you know obviously doing his damnedest to get all of his money. And the one thing I don't know yet is how long this is going to take to sort out, and how much of this is going to. Uh, linger over the first year, if not longer, of Dan Hurley's tenure at UConn. It'll just be something that uh, is part of the coverage of that program, not necessarily that team. Um, and rest assured, you know, I live up here in Connecticut, and the local media does its diligence. This is not going to be something that goes away and we don't hear it about again until the case is resolved. There will be multiple headlines, which will then be talked about in national forums, just as on this podcast, whether we write up about it on the site or many other sites that do that. Um, I think the workouts is the biggest thing. It's, it's the one key thing. And Glenn Miller, the former assistant who now, by the way, works for Jim Calhoun at a division three university up in Hartford. They are literally started a men's basketball program that starts this season. Uh, his involvement there, his accusations have wound up being key. What I also do not know at this stage is how much he is willing to cooperate from here on out, given that he is still in college athletics and whether that can be held over him against him or not. But clearly that is a, uh, a bridge that was just straight up torched and, in retrospect, Parrish, it's weird because both of those are Ollie's guys. They were shared a staff. Glenn Miller didn't get promoted to the head coaching job. And, and how much was there a schism there? It's, it just seems to be a, a relationship beyond repair. And so UConn absolutely is in, the, is in the midst of plenty of drama off the court. And I don't think this is something that we're going to get resolution on before the start of the season. I've been so distracted this entire podcast. You watching some World Cup right now? My Mexican brothers, they did just. I've been having to sit here and talk about basketball while my Mexican brothers are getting their brains beat in. And did you just see this? And this won't be great for the podcast, but we're just talking. Did you just see this in the Germany South Korea game? Well, one no, but two, I'm actually of Swedish heritage, so I'm all good with the Sweden romp in Mexico, just for the record. But no, I did not see. I don't have the TVs on in my office here. I'm from Me- I'm Mexican heritage, no, Norland. Stop. Your last name is Parish, dude. My grandfather. Rest his soul, is Antonio Cerros. I mean, I'm, Mex- I'm Mexican heritage. I I honestly don't know if you're telling the truth right now. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I, I like listen. I, like I didn't grow up in Mexico, but um, my great grandparents did. Absolutely, my grandfather was born in Southern California. His parents were from Mexico. That's a true story. Oh, well, then my condolences uh, on my Swedish boys. Kicking South Korea just scored on Germany. That's awesome. And Germany is going to be eliminated. Oh, my it's- gosh. Which, by the way, listen, I'm not like a soccer expert, but this is kind of – honestly, it's kind of equivalent to like Kentucky losing in like a 215 situation in the first round of the tournament. A lot of people thought Germany would win this thing again. It's crazy. No, like this is bananas what we're just watching here. So <laughs> So – South Korea scores in extra time, but it's called uh, it's called offsides, and they have to go review it, and it gets overturned. Oh, to a, 
to a good goal. So the place is going bananas. <laughs> but my, and my and meanwhile, my Mexican brothers, <laughs> they it's tough, Norlander. But they're You're advancing sweet. anyway, are they not, even with this loss? I believe they advance anyway now, yes. How about this? So we had Grandparents Day, just to prove that, the, that not that the story will prove that the, my story is true, but just trust me, all of this is true. We got Grandparents Day when I'm a kid, like kindergarten, right? My whole time, I thought my grandfather was from Mexico. I thought my grandfather was Mexican. And so we go to Grandparents Day, and he's there. And the teacher's like, uh, Gary, introduce your uh, grandfather. And I say, this is my granddaddy and uh, uh, Tony Saros. And uh, they said, well, what do you want, what do you want your grandfather to, to talk to the class about? And I said, granddaddy, just tell him about uh, what it was like growing up in Mexico. He was like, I didn't grow up in Mexico. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Yeah, I said, uh, okay, well, like, tell him what it was like in Mexico. He's like, I've never been to Mexico. <laughs> but like for the first six years of my life, I thought my grandfather was like legit Mexican. It turns out he was just from California. Never been more disappointed in him. <sighs> Perish. True story. Well, I learned something about you because I never would have possibly imagine that this is part of your heritage but... can't believe you question my mexican heritage yeah it looks like sweden and mexico are going to get through now i love this world cup stuff by the way yeah it's a good time man it's awesome it's just, just... Yeah. like the idea that it's on in the afternoons is oh, awesome yeah. day sports like, in general during the week is fantastic yeah awesome like i've been i like i yesterday was awesome with argentina and diego maradona and the double bird yeah and, uh, yeah, I wish we could have the World Cup for the rest of the summer since the Mets suck and I don't have anything to watch. Yeah, you know, the World Cup, we got to wrap up here, but uh, I, th I believe the World Cup final takes place the Sunday after – the Sunday of the Peach Jam. So we'll be back home for that. So you, so you won't miss the actual final. Oh, I, well, I'm coming home Saturday. Well, yeah, you're that's coming what I'm home saying. Saturday? No, I'm saying, like, we'll be home for that. We won't miss it. Uh, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. All right, good. That's good news. But, well, there's yeah. the soccer update at the end of a college basketball podcast. <laughs> thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you for putting up with this. The Koreans just scored again, Norlander. Amazing. They're, hum they're humiliating the Germans. Wow. I'm going to have to text my German exchange student. She's probably heartbroken right now. Drunk and heartbroken in Berlin. Dude, All right, tell what, a subscribe. what a day. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagley. He's a legend. And remember to go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Rate it favorably. That means five stars and nice comments. Treat us like an excellent Uber driver, except you don't have to tip. Just five stars and, and nice comments. That's all we ask. And uh, we will talk to you again, I guess, next week. Till then, take care.